Cadence Productions. Before we begin, a warning. This podcast contains descriptions of sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. May 2014. Almost one year after her rescue, Ruby has a dream. She is walking through a rich green field. Tall grass brushes gently along the tops of her knees. She feels a soft breeze on her arms. There is nothing too loud here, nothing too cold, nothing at all to startle her. The space feels familiar, but there is something else here too, something special. Though she is all alone, surprisingly she does not feel unsafe. She does not feel lonely. Instead, she experiences something she has not felt in a long time. Peace. It meets her there, in that field. It embraces her, and then takes her hand walking with her beside the gentle, trickling waters of a stream. Her body feels different somehow, lighter. She no longer carries the bitterness and anger that has weighed so heavily on her. She is somehow separated from those heavy burdens. She feels free. She feels, though she can't explain it yet, or hardly believe it, like she has been found. Ruby lays there, in that crowded dorm room at the DSWD, shoulder to shoulder with the other girls, fast asleep. This dream, in the dark night, is a gift an answer to an aching prayer. Ruby is not dreaming of where she has been, but rather it is a glimpse of where she is going next, her future. But first, of course, before the peace, before the comfort, Ruby must face the nightmares. From Cadence Productions, this is Finding Ruby. I put it on the altar, it was mine. A true story of loss and trauma at the hands of one of the world's fastest growing crimes. But also a story of triumph, of rescue and resilience. This is the story of 16-year-old Ruby, thrown into the fight of her life, and of those who have chosen to come alongside her and make it the fight of their lives too. Episode six, The Triumph. Throughout this podcast, we've often used the image of fire to describe the crime of OSEC. 
A fire that starts small, with a few clicks of a mouse, and then grows quickly into an uncontrollable wild force that leaves a path of utter destruction, devouring girls like Ruby in its wake. A fire that people like Attorney Ray and other professionals working against this crime have given their lives to fighting. And on the days when children are rescued and criminals arrested, there is a collective sigh of relief when a small part of the fire is extinguished. Good overcomes evil. But what happens after a fire is put out? What do you do next? With all the broken pieces, all the charred remains? How do you wipe the soot from your hands? Deal with the remnants of loss and pain incurred? How do you rebuild after such damage is done, not just to the body, but to the heart and mind? For Ruby, the remains of fire, after being in the house for those two months, continues to smoulder. Anger, and then bitterness, eats away at her soul. She develops an intense hatred towards Nadine, Pedro and Kiko. And on top of this, something perhaps even heavier. Shame. I felt dirty, I felt very disgusted with myself from those things that I've experienced. I mean, in the eyes maybe of my customers, they saw me and I did things, you know, a, a typical teenager could ever imagine. At the end of episode 5, we left Ruby with a major decision to make. To accept a plea bargain, shortening her perpetrator's sentence considerably, or not. This was actually put to Ruby almost four years after the date of her rescue. The decision Ruby eventually came to, and her actions that followed, actions that are still spoken of throughout IJM today, were the result of a much bigger journey for Ruby. One that came from the inside out. And to understand this journey, we need to head back to an evening in May of 2014. To the night when she had that dream. May 2014. Pampanga. Ruby has been living at the DSWD for almost a year, and her spirits are at an all-time low. The many stops and starts of the case are smothering her hope, choking out the air. She doesn't like it here, in Pampanga. It's too hot, too sticky on her skin. She's not a city girl, and it's so busy here, so noisy. And the monotony of each day is resulting in a boredom and listlessness unlike she has ever felt. She can't keep going like this. There were nights that there were nights that I would wake up feeling empty. I was even thinking of um, ending my life too because I was so helpless. But then, um, IJM people, especially my social workers, didn't give up on me. Ruby has been given an IJM social worker, a lady named Miss Asil. 
A seal is one of the few bright areas of Ruby's life during this time. Mrs. Seal has been regularly visiting the DSWD, meeting with Ruby, spurring her on, encouraging her to be patient. But this evening's visit is different. There's a desperation in Ruby's eyes. Ruby makes a request to a seal. She wants to return home, to her village. She's done. She wants to leave all of this behind and move on with her life. A seal listens and sympathizes. She agrees that it is definitely an option for Ruby. But she has another idea for Ruby to consider. She suggests a move to a new location, to a place called Lighthouse, a greener space away from the city, a place where Ruby can find her feet again. She tells Ruby to think about it overnight. And then she leans forward and does something very common in the Philippine culture. She bows her head and prays with Ruby, for Ruby. Now, at this point in her life, Ruby is not a person of faith. This is despite the fact that the Philippines is a predominantly Christian nation. In the Philippines, public prayer and religious observances are extremely common. And moments like this, where a social worker prays for someone in their care, is considered very normal. For Ruby though, it's never really been part of her personal life. But in that moment, as a seal prays, it's like something new awakens in Ruby. And that's um, the moment that um, I had a first encounter with, you know, the Lord. I believe intimately because my social worker started praying for me. Um, I could remember one of her lines that uh, she actually asked the Lord to guide me and to touch me and give me wisdom, you know, um, in making that decision. And that night, Ruby's sleep is full, not of nightmares, as has been the case for so long, but of peaceful visions that seem to recall her childhood home. I dreamed about um, the verse in the Bible, which is in Psalm 23, verse one, verses 1 to 3. I dreamed of uh, walking um, in a tall green grasses, and I didn't feel um, unsafe even if I'm alone. I only felt peace. I only uh, felt harmony and contented within me. Again, at this time in her life, Ruby is not someone who would consider herself a spiritual person. Certainly not someone who meditates on scripture. But Ruby looks back on that night and the next morning as a key turning point in her life. I don't know how did that happen, but then um, the next day my social worker um, came to visit me again and then I told her about my dreams and she actually had the same dream. She saw me um, going back to school in a uniform. 
For Ruby, the fact that a seal was given the same dream that night, but with the addition of Ruby in a school uniform, is the confirmation she was looking for. She agrees to this new plan. Hope sparks in her heart. Ruby's dreams of education, so cruelly interrupted in that house in Pampanga, might just have a chance once more. Describe yourself before as a mama bear. A mama bear, exactly. I can pounce at anyone who tries to get into or try to hurt any of my girls. Exactly, that's who I am. That voice belongs to someone we will call Miss Rosa. Miss Rosa is the co-founder of a shelter we're calling Lighthouse. Again, both of these are pseudonyms, which we need to use to protect identities. Ever since she was a little girl, Miss Rosa has been someone drawn to helping others in need. I love uh, the idea of taking care of people. I think even when I, I was young, I felt like I know I was drawn, I was drawn to helping whoever's crying. Lighthouse, now over 15 years old, is a shelter, a home that exists to help restore women and children who are victims of human trafficking, abuse and exploitation. For Miss Rosa, it's a place that provides second chances. Because we've seen a lot of girls, we've befriended a lot of girls working through that and they wanted to escape their lives, they wanted to start anew but they just don't have chances and people, the right people to start up with, and trusted people who could help them. Lighthouse is a long-trusted partner of IJM. When children who have been rescued are in need of a place to recover, one of the people IJM will reach out to is Miss Rosa. Now, it's worth noting that when a new child comes to Lighthouse, it's a big deal. The team there work hand-in-hand hand with IJM to make sure that the process moving out of the DSWD and into this new home is as smooth as possible. It's a very delicate time and Miss Rosa has learned over many years that it cannot be rushed. We allow them to, if they want to just be alone in their room or just in, in their place, we allow them some space and we will just tell them that if you're ready, we can talk and I we would just um, make them feel uh, loved, like, what is your favorite food? So um, everyone in the girls would have, would prepare something so that we can just offer it to her. Is this your favorite food? And so everyone will celebrate the person. The first timers will be celebrated. The transfer to this new home once again takes Ruby on unfamiliar streets. Only this time, she is leaving the hustle and bustle of the city behind her and re-entering a country environment. Ruby watches as the scenery gradually changes colour as she travels. She notices the way the light slivers through the leaves of the trees, and she feels the slightest shift inside her too like the tiniest pinprick of hope, of light, is finding its way in. 
Archie is cautious too. Dreams are one thing, but reality, she knows well, can be entirely different. When Ruby pulls up at the house, she sees two homes with children playing and laughing. The sound is both pleasant and jarring. Ruby wonders if she will ever be able to laugh like that. Miss Rosa remembers her first impression of Ruby. That time she was um, shy. Um, it's like she's teary-eyed. It's like her face is filled with so much, so much stories that's, that's, uh, that needed to be unlocked. And um, there's a lot of fear. I remember that. A lot of fear. To begin with, that fear seemed to spill over into her experience at the house. She had nightmares then, and she... There would be times when she just wanted to be isolated. She just does not want to, to talk. Alongside the trauma though, even in these dark beginnings, Miss Rosa sees a seed of something else in Ruby. Something growing out of the ashes of her life. For me, that time I've seen a leader in her, even when I first met her. Um, there's this um, facet in her that um, makes me think that she is a leader. She's a warrior. I'm about to play for you a soundbite that is very dear to my heart. If you're listening to this episode, then you've come on the journey with us and you know just how dark this topic of OSEC can be. To give Ruby's story as much context as possible, we've had to dive in deep to chase out the details and to ask the questions that we didn't really want to ask. And I will admit that there have been times throughout the production where I have wanted to walk away from it. But there has been a moment that has kept me going. The moment came on the third day of our trip to the Philippines. The IJM team took us to a shelter, a home that housed 10 girls that had been rescued from OSEC. They were from the ages of 11 years old down to three years old, the same age range as my children. I was incredibly nervous walking into that home would these girls be scared of me? A westerner that might look like the men that exploited them. The men on the screen. Now I was expecting to feel a heavy weight of sadness when I walked in. But what I was met with instead was a lightness, a joy and a peace that I could almost tangibly feel. The girls were running around, laughing. They were singing and playing. They were happy. I'm going to play you a clip from that morning. Here, in this moment, the girls are just playing quietly with their toys.
The youngest girl, the three-year-old, had the most delightful cheeky grin. She sort of shadowed me all morning. Whenever I turned around, she was there, smiling up at me, chattering away in Tagalog, the local language, always saying the same phrase, which of course I couldn't understand, but I nodded along enthusiastically. Eventually, one of the workers at the shelter walked by and said to me, do you know what she is saying to you? I admitted I didn't. The worker told me, she is saying that she wants you to be her brother. I almost completely lost it at that moment. Something sort of clicked in my heart and I decided that yes, I will be her brother and I will fight for her like a big brother would. I wish that somehow I could take each one of you listening to this podcast to that shelter. Hope seemed to just fill the rooms. Again, we've taken some photos of that home and put them on the website. We cannot show you the girls' faces, we must protect their identities, but I think you'll get a feel of the joy in that place. But of course it raises the question, doesn't it? How does this happen? How can something so beautiful come to be after something so evil has taken place? There is a term for what's going on here. It's called aftercare. And for someone pulled out of OSEC, it can be just as important as the rescue. Perhaps the most important thing to say about aftercare is that there is no such thing as a set formula for healing. Each person's journey is different. So working with survivors is a bit challenging. That's why building an aftercare program would require establishing a good relationship with them. That's Lani Alano again, Senior Lead Advocacy for IJM Philippines National Aftercare Development. Right. It would require a series of meet-up, uh, getting to know you session, providing them the right information uh, of their inquiries, orienting them on the process from rescue to restoration, and eventually getting their consent. So th that's the start. It's hard to pin down exactly what a typical aftercare program looks like because each one is so unique. But what they all have in common is a structured routine and a supportive, caring environment. A place where they can work through the many complex layers of hurt, betrayal, and trauma. And remember, Ruby's story is unique in that today, most of the survivors are dealing with abuse that has taken place in the home context. For some children, they have this uh, guilt feeling because uh, since they have this feeling that uh, my mom or my parents were in jail because, because of me or uh, the separation of the family is it's all because of me because I, I say something bad, I say something, uh, that's why I, my mom is in jail. So that's one. Because how can you explain to a child that a crime has been committed or uh, that uh, his or her rights has been violated by, by her parents? They will always consider their parents as their uh, heroes, right? Here's Lawrence Aratau. Again, he's the Director of Prosecution and Aftercare 
the Centre to End OSEC. I think that when it is family, just because of how, especially in our culture, you know, family is almost everything, um, then it just feels that much more painful. It's also complicated because they will still want daddy, they will still want mommy, won't they? I mean, who wouldn't? They would still long for that acceptance and love. And there are some who may not even know the degree to which it was wrong. And that's not their fault. Because if you grow up in a very complicated moral landscape, almost an ambiguous moral landscape, where uh, the parents are not sort of imbuing into them their value, their own value, they might not realize that them being exploited that way is, is incredibly wrong. Uh, because again, the perception of their own value may, may have been affected. The older children, those who understand the crime a little more, have an additional element to their trauma. Uh, for teenagers, they really hate this. Uh, people who are viewing their, their photos, who are asking them to do something bad. And the thought of captured images of them continuing to circulate, even after they've been rescued, significantly increases the trauma experienced. Actually, whenever we, we talk to them, they hate more the, the, those foreigners compared to their parents' perpetrators. Shame, anger, aggression, anxiety, sleeplessness, depression, panic attacks, poor health, and many other effects of abuse show up during this time. It all feels very overwhelming. But the beauty of it is, in the aftercare journey, I mean, restoration is possible. And we're seeing cases like Ruby's that tell us that it is. You know, early on, Rich, we actually asked that question, is it possible? And I had a friend who asked it with so much earnestness because he didn't know the answer at the time was yes. So it was almost a heartbreaking answer, say, heartbroken question. He said, no, I don't know if recovery and restoration is possible. I don't want to believe it. But now we have stories like Ruby's and, and many others who tell us that it's, it is. It's possible. For Ruby, the time at Lighthouse proved to be a time of great restoration and healing. But it was slow. Yeah, um, it took me like years <laughs> uh, for that uh, change to finally happen. Like it slowly changed me there. A few very significant moments happened in Ruby's life during this time. Firstly, after about three months, Ruby returns to school. Education motivates Ruby. She wants to study. She wants a future. Secondly, something less concrete, but no less significant, takes place in Ruby's life at this point. Ruby learns gradually to accept what has happened to her and to accept herself. Accepting myself uh, was really hard for me. I felt very disgusted with myself from those things that I've experienced. My um, aftercare shelter, um, the programs there, the people there, they taught me how to accept myself. But the process was long and it was really hard. 
And the third thing that happens to Ruby is something that involves more of a spiritual transformation. Ever since that dream, where she had a vision of the Bible passage, Psalm 23, playing out in her life, something has been slowly developing in her heart. She's watched some of the other girls in the house develop a relationship with God, and in this, experience a great deal of comfort and peace. Many of them pray, many of them sing songs, and joyfully. She asks questions of these girls, and begins to pray herself. You may wonder why we've included this part of Ruby's story, this spiritual, quite personal side to her story. It's because honestly, what happens next would make no sense without this context. The spiritual change, this personal relationship that she develops with God, creates a very practical, tangible change in the way she lives her life. Anger can cause bitterness in any area of your life. I wasted so much time, you know, living in bitterness because of my anger towards them. But when I started to um, slowly surrender to God my angers, my fears, my hatred towards them, and learn to eventually forgive, um, that's when I started to finally feel the true or the real happiness and enjoyed my life. When attorney Kath first brings the plea bargaining agreement to Ruby, she does so knowing that this is likely the best way forward for everyone. But she cannot predict how Ruby will take the news, or what she will do with it. That day, when everything starts to change, Ruby stands outside the courthouse with Miss Rosa, anxiously pacing back and forth. This time, attorney Kath has asked Ruby to wait for her. The new lawyer is there, and he is asked to speak with Kath. Ruby trusts Kath implicitly, but she doesn't trust him, or any of them for that matter. What exactly is going on? Attorney Kath emerges from the building, the click of her walk, the smoothness of her clothing, everything is as it always is. But Ruby sees something different in her eyes. A flicker of determination, of promise, and the tiniest hint of uncertainty. Kath presents the sharp change of direction to Ruby and Miss Rosa. She tells them that Ruby's perpetrators no longer want to pursue the full case. They want to pull it to a quicker close. They want a plea bargain. But just exactly what does this mean for Ruby and for the girls? and for justice. As we mentioned in the last episode, this was a time of great inner turmoil for Ruby. For over four years now, she had been imagining Nadine and Pedro spending the rest of their lives in prison. I remember her talking about, you know, maybe um, this is the right justice. You know, that this is the, the right kind of justice, but she still I remember during those times, we're, we're having a hard time processing it. Ruby wonders about the impact all of this will have on Nadine and Pedro's children. 
like okay uh, maybe the children would have a hard time they won't go to school something like she thought about it and I said well this is the consequences the consequences of the things that they have done to you and there are things that they need to pay for after taking some time to talk through the ramifications of the agreement with Kath and Miss Rosa, and after praying, at last Ruby makes a decision. She decides to accept the plea. It's what's in the details of the agreement that eventually sways Ruby. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to get technical here, so stay with me. Firstly, the plea bargaining agreement was between Nadine and Pedro and three of the girls in the house. There, there were six private offended parties listed, but there were just three of them who wanted to pursue the case. So at the time of the plea bargaining, there were just, I was only representing three victim survivors, Ruby oh. included. The agreement is that Nadine and Pedro are given a lesser sentence, 15 years, in exchange for the following. Firstly, a payment of compensation, or what they call civil indemnity, for the three girls, Ruby included. Kath was fastidious in making sure this was correctly in place. I added a provision in the memorandum of agreement that would um, impose the payment of damages upon the accused. Since we have determined that they have the financial capacity and resources to remunerate their victims, and second, the chance for the three girls to confront Nadine and Pedro, to express their feelings towards them, and to be given a public apology in return. This was the part that especially interested Ruby, and Kath explains why. Ruby wanted this because she wanted the accused to apologize to her in public. She, she, she really wanted this. Well, that was her, that was the reason that she gave me in the beginning, but eventually I discovered that Ruby really wanted this because she wanted for restorative justice to prevail. I think that's what I love about Ruby. She's not after retribution. She wants restoration. So, Ruby agrees to the plea, and Attorney Kath begins to put all the pieces into place. The wheels are in motion. But it's important to note at this point that it's not a done deal. The direction of this case could still change should Ruby change her mind. Until it is finalised with another court appearance, the plea bargain is not a final reality. And Ruby has her own wishes. They might not be in any of the official documentation, but they are written loud and clear on her heart. She wants to see something from her perpetrators. She wants to see remorse. She wants to see an acknowledgement of the harm they have done. She wants to see repentance. But will they be able to show it? And will Ruby carry through with the agreement if they don't? Even as Kath proceeds, she does so with these questions swirling unanswered in the air. Is this the end? or just another turn in this long journey. July 26, 2017, Pampanga. On the day set for the arraignment of the plea bargain, Ruby arrives at the court with Miss Rosa. Attorney Kath is there to meet her. Together they walk up the stairs into the courthouse, 
hoping that it is the last time that they will need to do so. When the proceedings officially start, Ruby is given the opportunity to confront her perpetrators, to come face to face with the people who did them so much harm. It was a secure setting, and this was with the help of the social workers and the court staff, and with my help as well. I was there, I was ready to intervene. Ruby was able to in engage with the, with the convicts to engage in a discussion of the offense that was done to her and its impact on her life. Also allowed the offenders to learn the impact, their offense on Ruby's physical, psychological, and emotional well-being and, and take direct responsibility for their behavior. Ruby can feel the trembling of her own legs. The emotions nearly overcome her. But she says her piece and then sits down. Now, it's her perpetrator's turn. When Pedro and Nadine stand before them, they are no longer brash and in control. No, their faces tell a very different story. They are visibly overcome. The woman, Nadine, their captor, cries as she looks at them. Tears roll down her face. She confesses that what she did to them was wrong. She was wrong. As they sit down, Ruby gives a nod to Kath. They will do it. They will accept the plea bargain. After that, the court proceedings go quickly. After so long, after so many twists and turns and dead ends, it's almost ludicrously simple. So with repentant hearts, the, the, the accused, the couple, entered a plea of guilty to the lesser offense of attempted trafficking with a penalty of 15 years imprisonment. The police approach Nadine and Pedro to lead them away, to their new home, to the jail cells where they will spend the next 15 years. 15 long years to pay for what they've done. They were crying. They, they, were, they were very remorseful. But then, suddenly, Ruby seizes Kath's hand. Wait. She leans closer towards her to whisper in her ear. She wants to speak to them again. She wants to speak to her perpetrators. Now, before they leave. It was, it was a sudden decision. She, she suddenly came to a decision to approach them and personally relay that she has forgiven them. And she has already set her heart into it that there was no more turning back. There, there was... No stopping her. There was nothing I could do, nothing I could say to convince Ruby not to engage with them. And then Ruby made me understand that she needed closure and healing and could only be free from, from the pain, from all the pain if she reconciled with her abusers. The couple was actually stunned when I told them that Ruby wanted to talk with them. I saw they were afraid, but they were also but they readily agreed to talk with Ruby. The man even wanted to kneel before Ruby. Ruby walks down the aisle in the near empty room. She stops before Nadine and Pedro and looks them in the eyes. Rich, when their eyes met, the woman instantly cried. She, she was begging for forgiveness while the man kept saying over and over how sorry he was that he regretted all the evil things they've done to Ruby. Ruby told them that she forgave them. 
Ruby speaks forgiveness over them. More tears flow. So I was telling them um, about, you know, how my life has changed over time during my stay in aftercare shelter. How, you know, um, how I was able to go back to school and how I was forgiven by our Creator. And so I'm doing, I'm just doing the same thing. I also honestly tell them or told them that if it's just for me, I'm not going to be able to do it, like forgiving you or agreeing with this plea. But because of, you know, the love of the Lord that's, you know, that I experienced after being rescued, I'm able to do this for you. Ruby is not finished. She asks if they will pray with her. The girl, once held in captivity, reaches forward and hugs Nadine. The court staff and the jail guards were somewhat shocked and amazed by what they saw. It was the first time they ever witnessed something like this unfold before their eyes. Miss Rosa too can only watch on, amazed. She uh, gave forgiveness and even hugged the lady who had brought so much devastation that really I can't I'm sorry I'm still emotional about that because I saw her and even and the and the perpetrator even said thank you so much I don't know how you can forgive me it was truly liberating and empowering for me I, I saw it in her eyes as the perpetrators leave the building the emotions at last catch up with Ruby's body like a wave they sweep over her she collapses. I actually broke in tears and I broke down. My legs were shaking because it was really a hard decision to make. So my strength gave up actually. Forgiveness, like all precious things, is costly. But she is free. Ruby is really free. How do you feel about it now, Ruby? Um, I'm actually happy with my decision because from that I was, um, it became a part, a big part of my healing process. Also, you know, like it's part of forgiving them. So, and forgiveness was uh, a way um, for me to um, live, or you know live uh, freely from anger and pain so it was very painful for me before to talk about this kind of or having this kind of conversation it was really like painful for me and hard but right now um, I could say that every time I share my story it empowers me Throughout this podcast, we have been referring to our 16-year-old main character as Ruby. Our title is, as I'm sure you know by now, Finding Ruby. But remember, Ruby is not her original name. Not the name she was known as when all these events took place. It's a pseudonym. Ruby chose her new name herself. And I think you'd agree that it's just right. Ruby, a precious jewel. 
Ruby, one of the strongest gems out there. Ruby, hidden, buried, covered over for a time, but then rising, coming to the surface, being found, reflecting light outwards for all to see. There are a few loose ends we need to tie up here. These are the questions that those who have previewed the podcast ahead of release have asked. You might be wondering what happened to Kiko, the IT guy that was arrested too. Well, Kiko didn't go for a similar plea agreement. He and his lawyer opted to fight to the end. The case took a total of six years. He was eventually judged guilty and sentenced to life in prison. And what of the other lady in the house, the boss's right hand? Well, on investigation, it turns out that sadly, she was a victim of Nadine and Pedro too. She had been trafficked herself, and it was years of abuse that turned her into the cold woman that eventually Ruby knew. Recognising this, the judicial system treated her as a victim, and she was released. I get asked a lot about whether Kath found love again. That was my question too. Yes, I found love again. I'm now married to a lawyer. He's also a book author. Is he? Yes, and he's an accountant too. He's a CPA lawyer. His name is Arnold. And what about Ruby's siblings? Well, following her sudden disappearance from their country home, they were very distressed and asked everyone in Ruby's circle if they knew where she was. Of course, no one knew. They had no idea where to look for her. Two months later, when they were watching the news and saw the story of the girls rescued from an online sex trafficking den, they had a feeling that Ruby was one of the girls. Ruby called them from the DSWD and confirmed this. Ruby soon reconciled with her siblings, and they enjoy a good relationship today. One of her brothers attended court with Ruby on a couple of occasions. The other question I get asked a lot is, what's next for this podcast? To answer that properly, I need to tell you a little bit about who Cadence is, and where this podcast came from in the first place. Cadence is a small creative agency for good in Sydney, Australia. So that means we build creative collateral, you know, graphic design, video websites, campaigns, that kind of thing, for not-for-profit organisations and socially conscious corporate companies. Of course, that means that what we do is commissioned work. That is, we are hired to produce the creative collateral. As mentioned, one of our clients is International Justice Mission. In 2021, they had a fundraising dinner which we attended and which we had helped produce the collateral for. That night, the guest speaker was Ruby. She presented over Zoom. Now, I had actually worked on two social media campaigns with Ruby during the previous year, but I'd only ever heard a condensed version of her story, the highlights, so to speak. But that night at the fundraising dinner, she spoke for a full 10 minutes. I was so moved by the details of her story that I knew then and there that Ruby's story needed to be told fully. 
all of the wonderful highs and all of the heart-wrenching lows. One of our greatest frustrations is the continual need to boil stories down so that they fit on a two-minute video or in a punchy social post. It is, of course, a necessary part of this kind of work because that's how we, as a society, consume so much of our media these days. We want things short and to the point. But when we do that, we lose all the nuance. We lose the chance to really get to know and empathise with the person or people we are learning about. And we often lose the opportunity to really stop and reflect on ourselves and the part we can play in bringing good to the world around us. So, despite telling myself over and over that no one was asking for this, no one was commissioning it, and I should just forget about it, I couldn't shake the idea from my mind. I wanted to tell Ruby's story. Eventually, we took the idea to IJM, offering to do this as a passion project of Cadence. Seeing the potential in this, IJM was immediately on board and took it to Ruby, who was equally excited. It has been an incredible privilege to tell this story and let it breathe on this podcast. So, it's the first of what we hope is a new way of telling stories of good. We believe that not-for-profit organisations like IJM hold the very best stories, stories of incredible human triumph and self-sacrifice. And so, we are currently thinking through a second series of The Fight of My Life. If you know any great stories tied to organisations committed to good, please reach out. But the second thing we are working on is what it might look like to take Ruby's story to the screen. Don't you think it would fit so well in a mini-series on a streaming platform? It's how we're going to bring the topic of OSEC to a mass audience, which I believe is what is needed to affect change. Cadence is keen to see this happen, as is Ruby. She just has one request. You all have to get a good actress <laughs> for the main role. The other thing I should mention is that we're going to put out a couple of bonus episodes for Finding Ruby. One of them is focused on what sort of feels like the underground movement to bring awareness and an end to OSEC. I'm excited for you to hear some of the other voices in this space. Stay tuned for this, make sure you're subscribed so you get notified. And that leads me to the next question. I've been asked a lot about how to take action on this issue of OSEC. How do you get involved in the fight? I think the best place to start is to become what IJM call a freedom partner. It's a monthly donation that helps equip and propel forward all the services we've talked about in this podcast. Investigation, rescue, legal services and aftercare. People like Attorney Kath are able to stay fully engaged in the work because of these freedom partners. There are other important ways to get involved too, particularly around advocacy. So again, I would really recommend jumping on board with IJM as a partner in this. Their theory of change is proven to work, and people like Ruby are being rescued and restored every day as a result. So finally then, and most importantly, what about Ruby herself? What's she up to? Where is she at today? And what's next for her? Well today, Ruby has a steady job and a steady home life. She continues to speak boldly, telling her story to ever-increasing audiences. And, as always, Ruby is a woman of great aspiration. She is hoping to soon be accepted into law school. She wants to do exactly what Attorney Kath is doing in investigating cases of OSEC. 
In 2021, Ruby was nominated for a Women of the Future Award, Southeast Asia, for her advocacy in the public and community space. Here's some audio from the awards show. Our judges commend this impressive group of impactful women. And so, who is our winner? Our winner is Ruby from the Philippines. Ruby's anti-trafficking work is having an extensive impact. Using her own experience, she supports and empowers victims. Her strong advocacy work and passion have already influenced policy development and programme awareness and could do so on a global scale. After spending hours with Ruby on Zoom, I finally had the chance to meet her in person. This was the last interview I conducted for this story. It was quite an emotional moment. I felt like I was meeting a movie star or something. Ruby had become somewhat of a hero in my mind. So I'm going to finish our podcast series now with a little bit of that conversation. I asked Ruby if she had a message or a piece of advice to others who have been rescued from OSEC. They will never forget what happened. But it's a matter of acceptance. Accept that it's been a part of you. Of course, it's it already happened. You cannot, you know, bring back time and change your decision. But it's just a matter of acceptance that, you know, accept yourself, love yourself because other um other um other than you, there's no one who could love yourself the way you could. So love yourself and pray there's hope. As this is the last episode in the series, I'd like to take a moment to thank, not just credit, some of the people who gave themselves to the creation of Finding Ruby. It has been such an honour and a joy to co-write this podcast with Nikki Florence Thompson. Nikki is one of those writers that possesses an incredible ability to draw out the emotion of a moment, and to do so in a way that invites you in, allowing you to experience it for yourself. I would encourage you to check out her work and her recent book at NikkiFThompson.com. Of course, I'm biased, but I think the team at Cadence, the creative agency behind this podcast, has some of the best creative talent out there. These designers, copywriters, video producers, web developers and marketers who worked on all the facets of the podcast with me, like the branding, website, visual creation, social media, they are, in my opinion, some of the best in the industry. So. A big thanks to Carla Moran, Sayaka Miashta, Ali Sheridan, Claire Bernard, Talia McLeod, Beck Kinney, Taehong Park, Brendan Ridley, Brad Connemy, Anthea Godsmark, and Matt Tooker. Can I suggest you take a moment to check out some of their other incredible work at cadencemedia.au. And remember, the show website, where you can dive in deeper into each episode, can be found at findingruby.com. Our theme song is Homeland by Searching for Light, featuring the wonderful voice of Jenna Carley. Oh. 
As always, a special thanks to Lydia Bowden, Evelyn Pingle, Meryl Sarko, Lani Alano, and all the team at IJM Philippines. I am so grateful for the time, care, and creative wisdom they have poured into me and this project. And finally, I am thankful to Ruby for the incredible example she is in speaking up for good. You can change the world with just your opinion, but uh, with your example, and I want to be that living example, I want to be that living proof that this can be ended with um, people joining together to fight this battle, this can be ended. And of course, thank you for listening. I hope you have been inspired in some way to join the fight. We would be really grateful if you would tell your friends about this podcast and take a quick moment to rate and review it. My name is Rich Thompson. It's been an honour to host this series. Goodbye for now.